Hi there. Welcome to the From Lab to Launch podcast by Qualio, where we share inspiring stories from the people on the front lines of life sciences. Tune in and leave inspired to bring your life-saving products to the world. Hi, everyone, and welcome to From Lab to Launch by Qualio. I'm Meg, your host. Thanks for tuning in today. Before we jump in, we'd love it if you would rate the podcast and share it with any of your science nerd friends. We know you have some. If you'd like to be on the show, please fill out the application linked in the show notes. We're grateful for all the interest we've had lately. So today we have Dr. Jack Coppin, CEO of Ratio Therapeutics, and Dr. John Babich, Chief Science Officer of Ratio Therapeutics. The team at Ther- Ratio Therapeutics is developing a suite of innovative technologies to develop best-in-class targeted radiotherapeutics for the treatment of cancers. They recently just opened a 19,000 square foot headquarters and R&D facility in Boston to continue their exciting innovation. We'll dive into how Ratio started, their growth, and what you can learn from their journey from lab to launch. All right, let's bring these gentlemen in. Welcome to From Lab to Launch. We're glad you're here. Thanks for having us. Wonderful to be here. Yeah. So Jack and John, to kick things off, we have a wide range of listeners on this show, some chemistry nerds, others like myself, not so much. Can you help us better understand what ratio therapeutics does as if you were explaining it to your grandmother? Sure. Go ahead. I have just learned another language as my <laughs> grandmother, but um, the simple, the simple, uh, the simple basis for targeted radiotherapeutics, right? So what we're, what we're doing is, um, is administering a radioactive drug that localizes the cancer and, and just like, um, typical radiation oncology is delivering energy into that cancer in a way that will kill the cancer. The difference really is that where, um, typical radiation oncology uses machinery and directs beams that, you know, from multiple different angles so that, you know, you can, you can basically hit the tumor in a crisscross pattern without hitting lots of other tissue at the same intensity. We have to administer a drug intravenously. And so our, um, our objective really is to design a drug in such a way that it will, the most of the radioactivity that gets administered to your patient will localize in that tumor or in the cancer and stay there for a prolonged period of time so it can actually release its energy, deposit its energy into the tumor to affect the kill. So it's a, a field of nuclear medicine. This is the use of radioactive materials for diagnosis and therapy. Uh, we're particularly interested in the therapeutic applications. Uh, we have a series of approaches to that, that we are, we're working on right now at Ratio. That sounds really cutting edge. Is there a particular cancer that, um, you're focused on, or is this applied to kind of all cancers across the board? So, you know, every, every time we contemplate a cancer, we have to match the, um, the cancer type with a, a particular target that that cancer might possess and, and, and the target being a particular protein that sits on the surface of the cancer so that we can get access to it from the blood supply. And so we have to think those, those things are, those are not, you know, they don't just sort of fall out of trees, so to speak. And so we have to really think about that. Right now we have a program that's ongoing in prostate cancer with a particular target. Uh, and we have a program that's a, a bit more broadly focused and that is to look at, um, really a component of a, of a, of a tumor. So if you think about, uh, the difference between a cancer and a tumor, 
a tumor is really a swelling. Uh, you know, the lump somebody would feel in a breast or the lump you would feel on in a prostate digital exam or some lump that you would find that you think maybe this could be a cancer. Uh, that lump is generically Latin referred to as a tumor, um, but it, it may be a cancer, it may not be. So what, what it turns out is that there are a lot of cancers that accumulate tissue um, side by side with the cancer cells that are from the host. And so they you know, it's giving out lots of signals. It wants to grow. It wants nutrients. It wants blood supply. And in the process of actually sending out signals, it'll recruit something called fibroblasts. And these are the these are the kind of uh, cells that would make the a scar form. If you have got to cut yourself, the healing part of the of the of, of the of the of your body that actually gets recruited into sort of stitch or cut, form a form a, a scab, and, and then basically. Uh, renew that tissue. So you, you get the cancer cells recruiting uh, these various, what are known as fibroblasts, because of the signaling, they get turned on. When they get turned on, they, they present a fibroblast-associated protein, which is known as fibroblast-activating protein alpha or FAP. And this turns out to be something that's expressed on many, many types of cancers in the, in the combined um, environment that the cancer cells and the host cells make. So they call it the tumor stroma. So they a sort of mixture of cells from the host and the cancer itself. And so we're going after that. It's called FAP. Uh, we have a diagnostic program with uh, one of our pharma collaborators, Lampius, on the development of diagnostic, the image of a variety of cancer, and also image any type of disease that provokes a fibrotic response. We also have the uh, rights uh, for the application and therapy, and this would have application along many different cancers, from pancreatic to breast to colorectal to lung, and also say liver cancer. There's a variety of cancers we can apply that to, and that's what we're developing right now. That's very exciting. I have known people personally affected by each of those three cancers you mentioned. So um, amazing work that you guys are doing over there at Ratio Therapeutics. Kind of shifting gears a little bit, you've both founded companies in the past, but why did you start Ratio together and how did you two get connected? Well, you know, we, we've known each other for a long time yeah. and had never worked together. Yeah. And um, you, you may want to tell, you, you tell a story. Yeah, and I do. Oh, so, no, no, it's like asking a couple how they met. I love yeah. it. So, uh, yeah, we met a long time ago, but in 2018, uh, at the time, uh, John was a uh, professor at Cornell, while Cornell in Manhattan. And uh, at the time, I was overseeing a company I founded in Vicro that uh, was really kind of the leaders in imaging drugs and discovery and also as an endpoint in clinical trials. And many people, this class of drug that John just nicely described is really an emerging, not a new concept. Uh, radioactive iodine was FDA approved in 1951, but it's it's in the last decade that uh, it's really gotten a, a big movement. Uh, Novartis and Bayer have joined the space, and Novartis has recently gotten a big prostate cancer drug approved. And uh, so we were seeing lots of drugs of this class, and and it, it, over the last uh, five or seven years, and it's really to John's point about where the drug goes how it accumulates, and does it have the right ratio of resident time in the tumor as compared to any excretory or off-target uh, resident time? And 
John showed up with uh, something he had invented and developed and, and really thought through. He's, he's been a pioneer in this space and studied a lot of drugs. And uh, we, we, my full competency is really in the, the studying of the pharmacokinetics of these drugs and trying to model them and understand where they go and quantify. It's a very quantitative sport as we always radio label at first and take a PET scan or a spec scan. We do, we, we do a scan. We actually can see where and uh, when and where over time the drug is. And so John showed up with this concept and I immediately said, that is the right idea. That is brilliant. Uh, it's really about tuning the pharmacokinetics of the drug. And John invented a class, uh, a platform where the binding moiety is targeting uh, cancer itself. The two, he mentioned two targets, PSMA and prostate and FAP, the pan cancer uh, target. And, and then another part of the molecule at a much lower binding affinity or worse binding affinity, it kind of hitchhikes albumin, which is a ubiquitous protein in your blood. Your uh, yep. coffee mug full of albumin flowing through you at all times. And, and this extends the blood, the bioavailability of the drug in the blood. And then that really allows more of it to get into the tumor and often changes its clearance mechanism. And so right away I was uh, excited about by this. And there was a, that was a, a previous effort and that drug was sold to buyer in 2021, which simultaneously, uh, spawned ratio Don quit his day job. I had, uh, subsequently retired according to my LinkedIn page briefly. And, uh, <laughs> we came back and, and started the company with a partnership with buyer, a partnership with Lampius that we've already discussed and, uh, raised some capital and built the team. And now we sit in this headquarters where 35 people, very technical team, very interdisciplinary, very interdisciplinary sport. You need chemistry, radiochemistry, biology, this quantitative pharmacology, uh, you need physics, you need radiation dosimetry. You, you know, it's just a, a lot of PhDs and not that PhDs, a lot of scientists of varying backgrounds here, very technical squad and, and, uh, we are, it's going well. Right. I'll just, I'll just say, it, you know, one of the reasons I, I reached out to Jack is I saw the, I saw that this would be, this technology would be amenable to actually the application of modeling. So this is a, a, a really tremendous skill set that Jack has and his team in, at his previous company, and that we've expanded on here as well. And to understand, can you actually model mathematically model what's happening in a human? And then take that modeling information and then, you know, through trial and error, make the molecule match what you expect the model to do. And so this is kind of, you know, we, we talk about math meeting medicine. This is kind of where this comes together. The idea that, you know, the, there is so much to do when it comes to quantitatively assessing where these molecules go because they have an impact on therapeutic benefit and on the, on the side effect profile. And, and there's a lot of calculation on this, right? So not, it's not just pharmacology for pharmacology's sake. It's also pharmacokinetics and, and the delivery is important and the ratios between how much gets delivered to the tumor versus other tissues is critical. So this is a, a real nice opportunity to use all this kind of expertise to sort of design drugs and understand drugs in a way that we, we maybe haven't understood them before. That's great. It sounds like a great partnership um, between yourselves, Jack and John. Speaking of partnerships, um, we mentioned a few big names in the industry like Bear and Merck um, and some others. How are you getting going about commercializing and executing on your go-to-market strategy with these big partners? 
Yeah, I think um, there is a, a really large appetite in this market for novel drugs. And I, I think what's great about this field is the interdisciplinary nature. Um, there, I think there are many people who felt like I have a failed drug, I'm going to repurpose it, put radioactivity on it and make a partner radiotherapeutic. Or there's people who say I have a new isotope and I'm going to find a binder and, and I'm going to have a new drug. It, it truly takes knowledge both in, in pharmacology in, in standard pharmaceutical sciences, which is obviously very challenging given the failure rates, and in nuclear medicine. I think that's what we wanted to build here. And so it's great to have partnership because you you expand sort of your skill set and domain uh, knowledge. You know, we're still a very small company, uh, 35 folk. And so um, to, to have partnerships where you can bring something to the table, but also, you know, with, with the might of some of these larger enterprises, uh, not just from a dollar perspective, but also from a domain knowledge perspective. So I, I think we're very eager to partner with folks and, and that's working out. That's great to hear. Yeah, one of the things we like to discuss here um, on our podcast is quality management, since Qualio is a quality management software. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the quality culture you're seeking at Ratio? It seems like you're definitely after product quality, um, but what does that quality culture look like, and how do you balance quality and product development? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let John answer this, because he, uh, he is truly a foremost expert in putting... We both have a lot of experience getting radioactive drugs in people, but I will jokingly say, like, there's actually no stress, no pressure putting radioactive, radioactive drugs into people, right? There's no quality. No, sorry, go ahead, John. Yeah, so the bar is. Really, I think I think we take quality. Um, well, we take it very seriously, not to imply the stone, but the, the the issue with quality really starts at the very very beginning of everything we do, right? So, uh, and this is another another um, significant. I would say attribute of ratio in that we're trying to make sure that we dial in the quality from go from, from the first time we make a molecule to when we track the molecule, how we, um, curate data about a molecule. And I'm, I'm talking you know, about chemistry, obviously at the very beginning, but also on that, let's say uh, protein based assays, cell based assays, preliminary evaluation in, in animals, ultimately preliminary evaluation in humans, you know, making sure that quality is built into data generation, data, data archiving, and then data, you know, at the point where you actually have to look at data, how do you curate the data and how do you present the data? So I, you know, I think quality in this organization comes at the, at, at go. And so there's also, you know, the, the QA functions of, you know, CMC and the QA associated with clinical trials. I mean, that, that to me is a given, but it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, when you, when you start to do that, you have to have quality. It's not, it's, you couldn't do it without it, it technically, right? It would be, you would be going against GMP and, 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 uh, well, all the, all the required obligations one would have from a regulatory perspective. So I think Q quality assurance really starts much earlier for us in our, in our tracking of information about the molecules that we generate and how we, and how we move that information in order to make decisions in order to move drugs forward. So I think it's for us, it's, I think it's almost part of our DNA now that the, the quality of how we acquire information, how we store it and how we evaluate it is, is kind of in, 
um, you know, I'm trying to think of another an analogy, but it's, it, it really is baked into our systems. And then, of course, there's, I would say, typical uh, in, in a way of quality assurance relative to you know, clinical trial, the, you know, site selection, vendor selection, um, you know, the quality assurance packages that go along with CMC. One of the things about this space, which is kind of different than maybe many other spaces, that whenever you're going to do a therapy, you actually have to make the drug. And so it's un unlike some uh, drugs that can be made in large quantity and then stored in a tablet form or even in a solution form and put in a fridge or put on a shelf. Um, because it's radioactive, it's like making ice cream in the summertime, right? It's, it's, you make it and it's disappearing as soon as you finish making it. And so you have to actually make the drug over and over and over again. So say for a clinical trial of 30 patients, you might have to make the drug 30 times for 30 patients. You might wind up with a batch per patient only because of the way scheduling occurs. So there's a lot of quality insurance that's built into the manufacturing and it has to be you know, at a level that is, um, you know, I would say uh, repetitive is, is the best way I can say it. And then, of course, there's always the, the quality assurance that gets implemented in the readout and the regulatory filing. So I, it's, it's, it really is in our DNA here, and it's in a big part of how we, how we make decisions is based on the quality that we put into those decisions. Yeah, I will, yeah. I will just add, and John nicely stated it, on the, to John's point of the ice cream, in addition to being ice cream, it's really uh, a micro, micro, micro dose of ice cream. So the mass doses we deal with, you know, when we, it's, we, we use for imaging, we use tens of micrograms and for, uh, for therapy, it's low hundreds of micrograms. And if you just think about a 200 milligram Advil and, and taking a, a thousandth of that. Um, just the, just, it's just a really, sometimes things don't work. And, and, and this, this is one of those strange fields where some people do a run and it, they don't get what they want. So there, a lot of effort has to be go, go into making sure that you're able to deliver drug on that day. Unlike having a job point, a stockpile or a lyophilized or whatever the, so I guess, you know, the gene therapy folks yeah. on the phone on the call would, uh, would, would maybe say ours is tougher. And I, I, don't, I, don't, right. I don't think we'll disagree. Yeah. yeah. No, no, that's, that's, point. That, yeah. that's another thing. It just, you know, it, it just, it just presents with challenges and, and there are failures. Yeah. I love that when the margin of error is so small quality in your DNA really helps from go. It's yeah. that's great. Yeah, and, I, and I think, you know, the Jack's point, you, you know, we have to go through a quality control every time we release a bath. That's, that has to be live and on the fly, right? It's not like you can wait and it, it, people are on the phone. People are sending emails. People are you're releasing, you know, um, you know, it, it remotely, right? Once, once the old data comes in, you can evaluate things. So it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's touch and go, but it's uh, certainly uh, high pressure on the day of the manufacturer. Certainly sounds like it. Speaking of high pressure, maybe um, you recently had raised um, for 40 million a few years ago. Congrats, by the way. How did you approach funding as often as the number one business problem for founders in this life sciences industry? We had a very good uh, founding in the sense we had a couple of strategic partnerships out the gate and were able to just raise some, raise some seed capital. And then um, kind of based on previous experiences, had uh, 
business contacts that were enthusiastic about a partnership, the team we, we built, continue to build. And so we were able to raise capital through um, really more angel, high network family offices and, uh, and existing kind of partnerships we had. Uh, that didn't mean it wasn't incredibly stressful. It just means that it was, uh, uh, it, it was different. I, you know, that, that's the approach we took, um, uh, and, uh, and right. And, and in our series B, we are exploring more institutional, more, more classic venture capital institutional, uh, money, but th there's a lot of partnerships out there. So it'll probably be some high. Well, switching gears um, back to yourselves, if you could go back to the start of your career and give yourself one piece of advice, um, kind of knowing how you've gotten to where you are now, what would it be? I don't know. We got here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get here. I give myself different advice. What advice would you give yourself to get here easier, maybe? Oh, easier? Uh, that I, I would have I would have a hard time thinking it would, there was an easy way to get here. <laughs> I would say the the joke I uh, I tell people when uh, we having in previously I started two companies and ran one for a decade that did very well. The joke I say to people if they're starting a company is like when they say what would you do differently I say probably not do that. Um, it's really hard. It's a lot of work. But then again. There's no real, uh, there's no credit without risk of blame and there's no success without risk of failure. So I, I guess, uh, I don't know. I, I think maybe eat better. Let's yeah. Uh, you know, that's probably get more sleep, yeah, yeah, sleep yeah, better, yeah. Sleep. a little more health. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I, and I, I think the other, so I've been involved in a previous company, we took public and I think one of the things that's really, um, critical is to understand your investor base. I think that's really you know, I, and I wouldn't say, I would say I've had now three experiences and, and, uh, you know, that, that is probably one of the most important things to understand is who's investing, why are they investing? What are their expectations? Uh, communication is key. I'm not saying we're not doing that. I'm just saying that, that, you know, to me, that seems to be a crucial part for, um, particularly companies in this space where. Revenue is not right around the corner, right? So you have to understand the, the sort of time frame of your investor, you know, what their expectations are, and then, and then, you know, make sure there's lots of communication. Um, because bad things, bad things happen, right? If, it's, this is, if it was easy, there'd be everybody, there'd be a drug company on every corner, right? So, and, uh, but, and, and the rewards would probably be a lot less, but you know, if, when you had, do have success. So I, I think it's to understand that component of the business, because it's a big part of the business. It's not, it's not in insignificant, but I think also to make sure communication is is um, foremost upfront with with your investor base. Yeah, I think, think that's great advice. Good wire. Yeah, yeah, a good IP. I think the other thing is get, getting a good IP attorney, you know, intellectual property attorney is critical. You know, again, when you're going into a business like this, you know, you really need to have a technological position. You know, and, and you may you have to make sure you're you're protected on that. So I mean, th these are things we haven't done. They are there are things we have done, but I, I think they're crucial to getting established on the right 
footing and then and then making sure you go in the right direction because you know things things happen as we know yeah i think that's great advice for any investors um or uh innovators looking to join the space our last question that we like to raffle up here is with a fun one um for each of you if we ran into at a bookstore like barnes and noble in which section would we find you in um i could say for better or worse, I would like to read, uh, like history of science. History of science. Yeah. I'm happy to read any history book. Um, but I typically would be reading some sort of history of the science or physics typically, but that's usually what I read. I would, I would not be in that island. <laughs> I would, I would history be, of math and probably not his own island. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> it's not his own no, I would probably be in the nonfiction section. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, I don't know math books, but uh, you know, I, I think, uh, it's, it takes me a while to get into non, to get into fiction. And it just, it just doesn't take me as long to get into nonfiction, but I tend to follow those books up more. So but I like to, I like to understand, you know, other people's journeys and these sort of situations and also you know, the psychology, the solid, the psychology behind decision-making is really fascinating to me. Right. You know, some of Malcolm Gladwell's books, you know, Blink, you know, the, the Tversky's books and Canahan. I mean, it, it is just so many ways to understand how you think and how you react to information, how the world reacts to information. It's always uh, humbling to, to have people study that and to see how kind of goofy we are at the end of the day. And when we think we're so, you know, driven by detail, and then we, a bird goes by and we make a change in decision. You're like, okay, that, that's a very solid decision to make so like, maybe i shouldn't pay attention to birth so much but you know they, they, there's a lot more to and, and this goes I'll, I'll i'll bring the quality into it right it's like how do you actually figure out the best way to make a decision how's the how's the data what is the data really telling you and that you're not fooled by it or you're not fooled by your own biases right so that to me is is kind of where i'd find my head in the book well i hope you have lots of summer reading ahead um, thank you so much for joining us on from Lab to Launch here. Um, I learned so much about ratio therapeutics and what you guys are up to. I will be following along. Where can our listeners go to follow along and connect with you? Well, certainly our website. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, thanks to the great group at Russo Partners, our LinkedIn page is, is really active. I admit I'm not a, I don't have a big social media presence personally, but they, you know, we're certainly on social media, uh, and LinkedIn. Yeah. Right. Well, we'll add your website and LinkedIn in our show notes. Thank you so much awesome. for joining us today, Jack and John. Thanks, awesome Meg. meeting you, Meg. Nice to meet you. Good luck. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you.